With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome into Double Stint, Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine with John DeGeese joining me from Chicago in the week that uh, we will see the buildup to the 24 Hours of Le Mans run in September for the first time in quite some time. Uh, we've got that to look forward to. We've got a whole bunch of news, including stuff from the IMSA State of the Series. Um, what would it be, like Web? cast or or it was a virtual state of the series meeting unlike the in-person ones that typically happen at road america a whole bunch of other news to get to as well plus that preview of the 24 hours of lamar it's going to be a busy show for sure so hopefully you can forgive us as we kind of breeze through the recap portion here we did have gt world challenge europe powered by aws racing at magni Cours in france it's the sprint cup racing there over the weekend Race one in the night, which was quite interesting, won by Lucas Stoltz and Mauro Angle. They dominated for the Haupt Racing team, started that race from pole and really weren't challenged. Meanwhile, in race two, it was pretty cool. A silver cup entry from the French Santaloc Racing team with a couple French drivers, Simon Gachet and Stephen Paulette. They took the overall win in race number two on home soil. More on those uh, with uh, our recap stories up on the website, plus a weekend notebook and a whole lot more other race coverage from over the weekend, plus more results in our weekly racing roundup. But, John, like I said, tons of news to get to, and let's start with the IMSA State of the Series, something we've talked about on previous shows. We thought this was imminent, and indeed it did play out. It was announced at that State of the Series that the uh, LMP3 platform will be a part of the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship as a fifth class starting next year. What did we make of this news? Yeah, it wasn't a huge surprise after seeing all of the, the speculation and, and considerations that IMSA was making for LMP3, but it definitely became a reality, and we had teams acting on it quite quickly after it was officially confirmed. Um, what we have is a six-round championship, not including the 24 hours at Daytona, so that'll be a non-points race, much like what we saw this year with LMP2, which actually remains the same with the calendar-wise. Um, LMP3 and LMP2 um, won't be going to the same tracks all the time though there's some that are lmp3 only weekends some that are lmp2 only weekends but i think for the majority of them there are they are together um both series will be at all four both classes will be at all four of the um michelin endurance cup races um and there'll be a championship for that as well but um yeah this is kind of news that we expected um lmp3 is the new generation lmp3s um the old generation will continue to be eligible in imsa prototype challenge which will remain at a six round calendar and then the new gen lmp3s will also be allowed in imsa prototype challenge as a second class so um, IMSA is definitely doubling up and investing quite a bit in of hopes of a, a considerable expansion of LMP3 machinery um, in the in the states. And um, personally, I'm not too optimistic on it. We, we might have some short-term growth, but I don't, I don't know where this leaves everything long-term. It reminds me a lot of the, the prototype challenge days when ALMS added the Spec Orica prototype to the field sort of, to sort of boost the car count. Um, it produced great racing. It was a great thing at the time, but it sort of once it lingered on for more than four or five years, it got a, got a bit stagnant and and a lot of drivers had inc- you know incidents on track with with bronze rated drivers and whatnot and i'm a little concerned about that um but 
I totally recognize IMSA's position they're in where they're facing dwindling car counts due to COVID and needing to find a way to boost the grids in, in, in some ways. So, um, yeah, uh, it's uh, interesting times for sure that, you know, we're going to have five different classes. Um, just a few years ago, there was a potential of maybe bringing it down to a two-class structure and things just seem to get more complicated. And um, that's the thing I'm a little bit more disappointed with than anything is just to wish there was an easier way to to showcase North American sports car racing in a clear distinction to help bring in new fans and more uh, attention to the sport. I was thinking the same thing when when this was announced and seeing five classes written out in front of me. I suppose I I must have known that that's what it would be, but actually to see that written, it just seems like a massive number. And uh, the added complication I'm also not a fan of. I I, I get that there is a desire to boost the car count, although, to be entirely honest, John, I, I think maybe outside of Daytona, I haven't really felt like the lower car counts have really been at a detriment to the racing. I, I've still been quite entertained, and even at Daytona, I found myself entertained. It, it's That event in particular, I think, benefits from having a, a pretty massive grid, but in general, the races we've seen this year, I don't feel like there was a whole lot missing, even if we were down on cars year to year. Yeah, but I think we can expect um, a few losses for next year, um, namely with the, the Penske Acuras, um, the two Porsches. Um, the Acuras will be replaced. I think I think we'll probably see two of those on the grid, but probably from existing teams, either in the GT Daytona class or in prototype right now. So we're probably going to be down four to five entries year to year to begin with and you're going to have to find ways to get those cars back into the grid my only concern is that we're probably going to be seeing some other gtd entries become lmp3 because of the cost uh, efficiencies there um, you will have some new teams coming in but from other imsa sanctioned series for instance riley became the first um, confirmed uh, entry with uh, uh, Dylan Murray and Jim Cox, and that's a very competitive GS class entry right now with the Mercedes uh, AMG GT4. So they're moving up to WeatherTech, which is great news for them. I think it's a great stepping stone there to move into prototypes and in that kind of platform. But we're going to lose a full-time GT4 car, which isn't as big of a deal because there's a huge grid right now in Pilot Challenge. But once you start moving some of these teams around, I don't really know how many more cars you're really going to get. It's going to be more about to sort of dividing up the classes, maybe more so, and, and you end up with having less cars in each class. You know, you could even, you know, include Pilot Challenge, GS, and TCR in this. And, you know, if you lose three or four of those cars, then those cars may spread out to go into IMSA LMP2 or LMP3, but you still have the same number of customers. And at the end of the day, if IMSA is looking at this from a financial perspective, they're not going to be really making any more money with entry fees. It's just going to be spreading the cars around to different classes. And I honestly thought that if they if you put enough effort into LMP2, I think you can make that a really successful category. And LMP3 is definitely going to put a huge detriment onto LMP2. And I, I think you know we only have a couple P2s now as a result of COVID. If there was no LMP3, I think you'd be looking at somebody like you know, the, the Riley team may be looking at an LMP2 instead. You know, they had put desires out there in the past of looking to move up to LMP2 at one point. If there was no LMP3 opportunity for next year, it makes you wonder where, which route would they would have gone. Would they have stayed in GS or would they have actually purchased an LMP2 car? So I don't think LMP3 is a magic bullet. 
Um, I'm happy that IMSA is making some changes. Sure, that's, I think that's good. Uh, it's good for the sport, but at the same time, it, I don't think it's going to really solve the car count issue. Right. I think it's a case of robbing Peter to pay Paul, and I'm going to push back a bit and say I, I'm not sure that change, just for the sake of change, is a good thing. I think, and maybe we'll we'll talk about this too when we when we get to Stefan Rattel's comments about GT World Challenge America. You know, sometimes there is some benefit in just being consistent year to year and letting some growth happen naturally. Now, maybe they know behind the scenes that that wasn't going to come, but I really am concerned about what this means for LMP2. I think that's one of the big questions that comes up when this announcement is made. And then the other thing is, where does the LMP3 class fit in in a competitive standpoint in terms of lap times? Where does it fit in in the class structure, and does that throw a wrench into things? So um, uh, IMSA president John Doonan um, said on last week's Midweek Motorsport with John Hindoff that he expects the LMP3 cars to be um, faster than GTLM but slower than LMP2. So it will be the third quickest class in the field. Uh, my only concern with that is once you put the bronze driver in, go. I don't think – I don't think it's going to be the third quickest class. And right. We've seen constant issues with LMP3 and GTE cars in ELMS over the years. And even with these LMP3 cars being more powerful, it's a, it's a more powerful Nissan V8 engine um, that debuted this year. It's still causing issues there. So I, I really don't think – I think we're going to be in for – more of a challenging situation when it comes to accidents, traffic, cautions um, with this formula. You know, the LMP2 car was is so fast in a straight line, it gets out, you know, you can easily have it get out of the way. You know, if you're, a, if you're an AM driver, you can easily pass the GT cars with ease. The LMP3, it's not, not quite like that. So um, that's one of my major concerns going into next year as well with, with that platform. Well, I think listeners can detect that both of us are a bit apprehensive about this decision. It it really doesn't do much for me. But I will acknowledge that if you do bring some new blood into the sport, that is a good thing. And the fact that we have teams already committing, like you said, Riley has talked about it, uh, Bernard Mueller with his team, they've been involved in Prototype Challenge, uh, helping, I think it's the Robillard Racing team, mm-hmm. um, over the last uh, year or so. Uh, they've got plans to at least be at Daytona for the non-points race, and, and you might see that be expanded from there, perhaps. So, you know, again, there are positives here. There is a reason that IMSA is doing it. I'm not sure that this really solves the problem that uh, that we've identified, but, you know, we'll we'll have to see how it plays out for sure. Another one that I think drew a lot of attention when it was announced, and, and this one I think caught us off guard, I certainly had no inclination yeah. that this was coming, was the new point structure that was announced and also the new qualifying format, which adds another level of complication to a sport that certainly doesn't struggle to be complicated, does it? Yeah, and I hate to be the, the downer on the show again <laughs> with this, but it's like I I don't really agree with either of these um, enhancements, as IMSA calls it. Uh, new point structure, basically it's a multiplication of 10 to the current point structure, which you do a quick pull of the of the paddock, and not everybody really likes it as it is. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a grandfathering of the old Grand Dam points, and nobody really likes the system as it is. I, I think... You know, when you look at what the FIA has done with their points standardization across the board through all of their championships, including the WEC and ELMS and whatnot, it makes a lot of sense. And it awards more points for a winner to, to a podium. And, and, and I think it's a pretty solid structure. And 
IMSA's points system is is really uh, a bit crazy. And you, I think it's 35 points for, for a win. Now it's going to be 350 points for a win. And they seem to have multiplied the, the points just in order to give qualifying points. And I'm all for qualifying points. I think that's a great idea. I think it's great. But now it's 35 points to get pole. And then it goes down from there. But if you just kept the original point system at 35 points to win, you could have given three points for pole. And okay, it wouldn't have been exactly 10% of, 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 you know, the, of what it was now, but I think it's like eight or 9%. It was still, you know, to me, if you give points for pole, give it a three, two, one, you know, first, second, third, and then that, and then cut it off. That would have solved the issue to me. And, and, and keep, the same point structure for for the races you know I, I, having these huge numbers is going to make it completely confusing to fans to try to follow i don't really understand the reasoning here if it was up to me i would have gone with an fia style point structure i don't know if there's legalities where they can't do that without a licensing or whatever but or make something similar to that at least um yeah and then we talk about the qualifying format um uh, DPI and, and, and GTLM remain unchanged. Um, thank God, but uh, <laughs> LMP two, LMP three and GT Daytona has this split qualifying thing where on paper, when you start reading it thinking, Oh, well, both the am and the pro are involved. That sounds really good. You know, is it an aggregate time? Is it something like WEC does? Well, no, it's where the am driver qualifies like they do right now. That will determine the, the grid for the race. But then the pro gets in the car, and that determines the points that they score from qualifying. And I've talked to a bunch of drivers since then, since this, and they're the majority are not in favor of this this format. Um, they think that the format was brought in to help show the ultimate performance of the car. You know, obviously BOP is a big talking point in IMSA and every major sports car series, and. Um, by having a pro in there to score points sort of pushes the teams to show the car's full potential. And um, qualifying is always that kind of place where you you see that happen. And um, by not having an AM in the car qualifying, that does create challenges with the BOP. And I totally get that from IMSA. But if you're only awarding 35 points, which is 10% of a win, it doesn't really mean that much in the in the grand scheme of things for the overall season. So there's drivers even doubting whether anybody will take that second portion of qualifying seriously, let alone trying to figure out how to explain this to fans, that there's going to be a pole sitter and then a fastest qualifier, I guess. Um, to me, it made would have made much more sense just to do an aggregate time between the pro and the am. And you would have had the, the quick lap times from the pro that would showcase the car's full potential for BOP purposes while also having, you know, the, 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 the am contribute to their um, effort. And then you would force the am to start the race like you do now. So I, I, I don't understand why they didn't go that route. Um, it, it's it's just leaving me with, with a lot of questions right now over some of these changes. Uh, then you throw in the fact that it's only the Pro-Am classes that have these two sessions yeah. of qualifying. The Pro classes continue as usual. So again, try explaining to the fan at the event or watching or listening or what have you why one class is doing it this way, but then the next class to come on track is, is doing it some completely different way. Ultimately, I think what this comes down to, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you hinted, it, hit, hinted at it a little bit, this seems to me to be a tacit uh, admission by IMSA that they are struggling with the BOP getting representative data, and they are trying to present a carrot for these teams to go chase these points 
and thereby giving IMSA the data about the car's true potential so that they can give a better BOP moving forward. Is that is that about right? I, I, I think so. We, we haven't been able to get anybody from IMSA on record about that, but I that's my hypothesis. Um, a lot of drivers and teams feel that way right now, too. But I don't think this is a big enough carrot right mm. now to offer, especially the especially with the complexity of everything involved. Um, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know what else to make of it. Yep, yep. I'm right there with you. I mean, it's going to be fascinating to to see how teams deal with this and and how they approach it moving forward. I think we might see a bunch of varying approaches in the early days until a consensus is formed. But uh, anyway, definitely out of left field. Yeah, and another thing is that you know you got to look at LMP2 and LMP3, and those aren't BOP categories. Right. So. <laughs> Again, IMSA could make BOP changes, I think, if they have to, and we might have to do this at one point. There's there's a lot of animosity right now in the IMSA prototype challenge paddock between um, the performance uh, differences with the Norma and the Liget, um, and it seems that there's a, still a performance gap to, to some extent in the new generation cars as well. So some form of BOP may have to be instated into LMP3. Granted, if we do get some Duquesnes, which are the the, the successor to the Norma, um, the, I assume that we'll see both brands on the grid. Um, there's a couple other LMP3 cars eligible, Addis and, and Janetta, but we haven't seen those cars publicly yet um, racing um, in the 2020 spec. But um, yeah, there's a lot to dissect, I think, and um, we're just sort of skimming the surface of this. And it'll be interesting to see if IMSA does maybe listen to some of the teams now that everything's been announced and maybe tweaks some of the format, you know, with the qualifying or points to maybe something a little more reasonable. I, I, I would sure hope so. Me too. Uh, now to a topic that came out of the state of the series that I think is far less controversial. We did see a provisional schedule, not just for the WeatherTech Championship, but for several of the Challenge series as well. And not a lot of surprises, which I think is a good thing. There are still some to-be-confirmed aspects to these schedules. But given all the uncertainty around scheduling, to have a general idea of what we're shooting for next year, and with the survival, it appears, of the the races that we've come to expect on an IMSA calendar seemingly intact, at least based on this schedule, I think there there's a lot of positives to take away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's probably the best thing from in my opinion from the the state of the uh, sport announcement and um, looking at the calendar it's relatively unchanged we have weather tech raceway laguna seca moving to an april date i think it's the week after um, long beach or maybe there's a week in between but i'm um, still a really good timing i think in in my opinion to have those two west coast races together that way it saves some teams uh some some money there we have we obviously saw the change of the roar um date to the week before the 24 so that um saves money as well um gt daytona uh, drops one round um down on the calendar um to a, a sprint cup only race at ctmp so that leaves an option for gt daytona teams to go north of the border that's another costly race usually for them so um, lots of little tweaks there that I think make a lot of sense. So um, hats off to IMSA for doing this. Um, we still have a TBD a date on the Detroit race. I think we're probably waiting on IndyCar for that. But um, other than that, everything else is pretty much completed. 
COVID's not going to like automatically turn off at the end of the year mm -hmm. when January 1 rolls around. It's not going to go away. Um, so we're hoping that we have as least of a disruptive schedule as possible next year. And But I, I think IMSA was very smart to put it out now and have teams start to plan because this is that time of year where you start putting budgets together for, for the following uh, season. Yep, really good point. And more on these stories, by the way, can be found at sportscar365.com, all coming out of the IMSA State of the Series. To some other topics of discussion, we expect an announcement from Peugeot on Friday revealing the details of their return to prototype racing. So when that announcement comes, John, what are we expecting to see? It's looking like they're actually going to be going the LMH route, the Lama Hypercar um, route, and it seems to be influenced by um, some of their sponsorship and activation um, needs and, 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 and desires there with having a bespoke hybrid powertrain um, for that car instead of having a LMDH where it'll be a spec hybrid. So um, expect I'm expecting it to be an LMH, but we could be proven wrong. You don't you don't know for sure until it's announced. But um, yeah, that announcement's on tap for Friday afternoon in uh, in Lama. That's I think 8 a.m. Eastern. There's a live stream on YouTube for that, so you guys can check that out. And um, we also hopefully will have an announcement from the ACO and IMSA on Friday as well, um, confirming the technical details of LMDH and LMH of exactly how everything will be balanced together because we're still waiting on a couple details. Um, I know it seems like there's been quite a few announcements confirming all this. First, we had the convergence announcement at Daytona. Then we had a press release, I think, in April or early May that was um, confirming that um, LMH and LMDH will be, will be balanced, but we didn't exactly know how, and we didn't have the full technical details on LMDH, and that included the, the powertrain, um, the hybrid system supplier and whatnot. Um, we should be getting all those details on Friday, and whether or not that platform will be delayed a year or two or not at all. <laughs> there <laughs> seems to be a lot in flux right now in terms of what could happen to LMDH, but um, I think that... Um, hopefully things will get be a little more clear during um, when that is announced and what will probably come as kind of a ACO, the, like kind of like the ACO's annual press conference, which I think will be a virtual one as well. Okay. Um, how about another French manufacturer, Alpine, which uh, has been in the news because the, the Renault Formula One team will be rebranded as Alpine. We know that. We also know now that they, they have confirmed their intentions to run a grandfathered LMP1 in the upcoming uh, World Endurance Championship season. Yeah, the story was broken by Auto Hebdo, um, the French publication, late last week that um, um, Signatech Alpine will be running an ex-Rebellion uh, R13 Gibson in the LMP1, as an LMP1 car next year in the top um, LMH class as a grandfathered entry. Um, that was officially confirmed Monday morning. Um, it'll be run under the name Alpine Endurance Team, and they claim it'll be a modified version of the Rebellion, um, although time is running out in terms of what can actually be modified. Um, we've seen before with Alpine where they basically rebadge an Orica 07 for LMP2, or you know, Orica LMP2 cars as Alpines. Um, presumably that'll be at least that, and hopefully maybe some bodywork changes or something that easily could make it a little more recognizable. But I think what's more important about this thing is that it shows the manufacturer's commitment to top class uh, sports cars, top class endurance racing with the WEC and at Le Mans. So um, I think this signals 
a very good sign that we could see Alpine continue with either an LMH or an LMDH program um, after 2021. So um, this is excellent news for Lama, for WEC, for all involved, because um, there's now a potential for three OEMs to basically be battling it out in um, the top class of Lama with Toyota, with, uh, with Alpine, and of course, Peugeot, which will be coming in 2022. So, um, you know, and then throw in some privateers like Glickenhaus and Baikalis and potentially some others. And it's actually not looking too bad. Uh, and then who knows what's on the horizon with Porsche and potentially other, other LMDH entries. So, um, all of a sudden things are starting to come together for, for the top prototype class. And it's actually quite exciting to sort of see this all um, come to fruition. Yeah. Nice to get some news that that leaves us a bit optimistic. That's been Few and far between, I'm afraid, here in in 2020. Switching gears away from ACO racing to the SRO, um, we had an article with Stefan Rattel talking about SRO America basically acknowledging the challenges that they have had with getting consistent grids, consistent strong grids specifically, in uh, GT World Challenge America powered by AWS over the last couple of years, this year in particular, and what ideas are being considered. It was a bit vague, but uh, Stefan did talk about looking at options to try and help, but perhaps one of those options was actually doing nothing, which I talked about earlier, maybe would be Mm -hmm. a benefit for IMSA. I'm not so sure that that's the case for SRO America, but, uh, you know, what, what do you make of Stefan's comments? Yeah, he, he was more of the opinion that, you know, hey, let's give this format a, a little more time to, to develop. You know, this is only the second year where GT3 has 90-minute races. We added the, the um, GT Sports Club onto GT World Challenge America this year to help fill the grid. Um, that seems to be working pretty well with those races ending after 40 minutes. And, you know, we need to focus on GT3 and, and this and that. And, and while I, I agree with him to, to most extents, I do think there needs to be more drastic changes for next year. I I don't think we can sit on another another year of what we're doing right now. Um, I know you're at the racetrack all the time, Ryan, and you have an inside scoop of what's going on quite often. But just covering these races from afar, it it, it seems rather dull. Um, you know, we're going to have a seven-car GT3 entry this weekend at, at Coda, which is good to see the second racer's Edge Motorsports Acura back. But, you know, in reality, you need... 13, 14, 15 GT3 cars really to make it somewhat doable and somewhat healthy. And um, I just don't see where we're going to find those cars under the current format. I I know some teams were pushing to, for a, a move back to sort of a 60-minute um, format so you don't have live refueling. That would save some money. Um, also, maybe not including the GT2 cars, having their own race there or adding in GT4s, but that opens up a whole Pandora's box of potential issues there because what would you do with Sprint or what would you do with Sprint X? Um, you know, it, it, SRO is in a real tough situation with, with, with what's going on in America. There's no doubt. I don't think there's any magic bullet. I don't think there's any one thing that'll immediately fix it. Um, but there, I think there has to be something done the next year to show that there's an, you know, some form, some form of evolution. Just like we saw during this off season when they eliminated the pro class and went full pro am, you know, they kept the same format of 90 minute races, but they 
changed a little bit of the structure, which had a big effect, unfortunately, on that. But um, if they were to do something similar or maybe, hey, let's just sort of concede and go down to a, a, a 60 minute format, I think that might be, for instance, a way to maybe bring in some more cars. Um, but that's just my opinion. Um, still lots of discussions. I know there probably won't be any decisions made until at least the Indy weekend um, when Stefan and some of the, the European staff from SRO are able to get to a SRO America event. Um, they still haven't been to any race this year due to COVID. So, um, yeah, it's it's tough times in, in that regard. But you have to look at some of the positives where the, the GT4 grids are strong. Um, sports club is just starting out and there's more cars on the way there. So it's all about sort of fitting the pieces in to the right places. And, and I, again, I don't envy Stefan or anybody or Greg Gill or anybody at SRO right now in trying to figure out the best solution. But in my honest opinion, I think there needs to be something done to change and not just stick with what they have right now for next year. Yeah, I'm in agreement by and large. And it's a shame because I actually really like the 90-minute format. I like the live pit stops. I like the refueling if you have the cars to do it. And there were a few races last year where, unequivocally, they did. And it was a good show, and it was intriguing. And, and I think, you know, the problem with 60-minute races, I know it's done elsewhere, but my problem with it, I suppose, is it just doesn't seem like a long enough stint for some of these pro drivers. I want to see them over the course of 45 minutes to an hour, whatever, do what they do, and and that's part of the appeal. In the 60-minute races, it seems like they just get going, and maybe there's a yellow in their stint, and they barely get any green flag laps, no chance to run. So I, I do like what they're doing right now, but clearly there is an issue, and some of it has to be cost. I think one thing that Pirelli World Challenge back in the day did well, it differentiated itself from Grand Am and ALMS and IMSA, by being shorter, single driver, no pit stops, and I think there was a clear difference in cost because of the format between what they were doing and what Grand Am, ALMS, IMSA, whatever, were doing. And that I don't think that clear cost is there, any cost difference. I think it's, it's, it is less, but it is still very expensive to run a full GT3 season right now. And if you take away the pit stops, if you take away the tire warmers, which let's remember came in, in the middle of last year and added some cost for sure to the teams, then maybe it's a more achievable proposition for guys who are currently racing in GT4 and Sprint X. I mean, think about maybe somebody in Sprint X right now would like to take the step up, take their driver coach with them, run in a Pro-Am GT3 format, but, but right now the cost difference is just too great. If you can bring that down, maybe that, that does lead to some more cars in the GT3 class. Clearly, it's complicated. There's no panacea, like you said, no silver bullet. But, um, yeah, I, I'm in agreement. I think there are some ideas floating around. We've talked about adding GT4 into the mix, which I, I, lo- I love multi-class racing. I think it would be fun. But we've talked on previous shows about the challenges inherent in doing that. I, I wish I knew the answer. I do think that they're working hard on it. And I do think that one of the challenges has been, in terms of determining the future, the fact that the European staff has not been able to be here and actually meet with its constituents, with its teams. And I hope that the Indianapolis race, they are able to come and that provides them that opportunity to actually interface. And I suspect moving forward, they'll have a better sense for what they need to do to to try and, and fix the problem. 
Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. And, you know, Greg Gill and, and the SRO America teams have been doing a great job as best as they can right now through this pandemic. And we have to remember that a lot of this has been put upon us because of the current situation. Sure, GT3 was struggling before the pandemic, but it's even struggling even more after, during it. So, um, you know, it's tough times all around. And I think everybody's trying to make the most of, of the situations. Yep, you can find uh, Stefan's comments up at sportscar365.com if you are interested. A final story to dive into deeply, at least here this week. We've talked about the future of DTM for what seems like years at this point, but certainly within the last year we've talked about it quite a lot. Uh, the latest has been an aim from uh, the, the organizers to bring in GT3 as the replacement to what is currently being used but in an upgraded form, and the question is, what exactly does that mean? What manufacturers are actually interested? I mean, the details have been few and far between since that intention, at least, was made public. And, and now, at least on the Mercedes-AMG side, we know there's not a great deal of interest, or in fact, no interest in upgrading, putting in the work to upgrade their GT3 car for what is effectively a domestic series when it would potentially conflict with their customer racing efforts already. Audi also expressing some questions about that format. But on the flip side, you do have other manufacturers that maybe have looked at the DTM from the outside and thought, hey, that might be a fun place to be. They might see this as an opportunity, Lamborghini being one example of that. What do you make about uh, what we've seen in these developments here recently? Yeah, it's a, it's a real interesting one because we don't know exactly what these upgraded GT, GT3 cars will actually entail. What does it require? Is it just a power increase? Is there a, a, a tire difference? Is it a, a different clutch in order to have standing starts? You know, we had those issues in the early days of, of Pirelli World Challenge when GT3 cars were introduced. I remember Cadillac spent a lot of money on building a... a, a uh, a special clutch and a special, um, you know, a starting system for their car, and they had, you know, a huge advantage over the over the other competition in GT3 because of it. And at this time, I don't think it makes much sense to do anything like that. Um, what I could see happening, again, and this is pure speculation on my part, and I know DTM needs a solution for next year, which will not really mean that this could come into fruition. But if we were to see the demise of GT Lama, GTE. And say by 2022, IMSA adopts a, a GT3 Plus format with a, a little upgraded version of GT3 with some more power and maybe um, the uh, removal of some driver aids and, and, and maybe a confidential tire or something like that. And, and maybe if the ACO even adopts that for, for replacing GTE on the global front, we could maybe see DTM adopt those regulations. And that way, a manufacturer has you know, only two platforms to really worry about GT one platform GT three, and then one like subset of GT three, which would be more of a, a more powerful version of that car with some minor changes that wouldn't affect the homologation as much. And it could be easy to convert the cars back and forth, etc. So um, that's my guess on what we could possibly see, but whether something like that is, is possible for 2021, I, I don't think so. And so, if I had to put money on what DTM would look like next year, I think it would largely be stock GT3 cars. Um, I don't think they have any other option right now, especially seeing the comments from Stefan Wendel from Mercedes AMG, you know, one of the manufacturers that has the most customer cars out there, um, you know, I, uh, not willing to 
make any significant changes to their car, um, that sort of sets the tone right there. I'm afraid you're right. It's a difficult situation for Gerhard Berger and the rest of the, the ITR folks as they try and sift out the what the future is going to look like for DTM. And I, I'm afraid it's looking fairly bleak, at least from where I'm sitting. Uh, like I said, it was a busy week in the news. Some other stories that you can find more about on the website, Action Express, closing in on a confirmation of its future program for 2021 in the WeatherTech Championship, a possible return to two cars. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, the IMSA race at Laguna Seca set to run behind closed doors due to COVID restrictions in California, but set to go on, which is good. Uh, the Nürburgring 24 entry list is out and 102 cars appear on it. Another bumper grid for that, even in difficult times. And also uh, United Autosports purchased the Straka Racing assets and that would make it seem like they're Return to GT racing might be a bit closer. More on those stories and more at sportscar365.com. Let's wrap up by previewing what's to come. Should mention that GT World Challenge America will be at Circuit of the Americas this weekend, and we will have coverage of that, of course. But we also have the big one, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, running in September. Let's see, what should we focus on as we look ahead to that uh the latest entry list perhaps we'll start there a change on the lmp1 front being the most notable change uh from entry list to entry list yes so um the janetta has dropped off the entry list i don't know if this comes as a huge surprise or not i i know they haven't had a huge great track record lately in terms of participation in wec events but there was a single team lnt um, Janetta entered for Mike Simpson, Guy uh, uh, Smith, and Chris Dyson. Unfortunately, they've withdrawn due to COVID, um, uh, basically citing the, the UK laws and the, the mandatory quarantine upon return. And I know there's waivers to get around that and, and um, certain things, but that's what they stated. We just have to sort of honor and go by what they have said. So it leaves us with a five-car grid in LMP1, the, the two Toyotas, the two Rebellions, and a Baikalis, and reducing the field to 59 cars. So um, that looks to be the final change we have on the entry list. We had a few other driver changes in the last week, uh, most notably Juan Pablo Montoya replacing um, Pipo Durrani in one of the Dragon Speed Oricas. Um, Durrani made it apparent to us that he stood down from the entry. Um, he um, uh, no ill feelings to, to Elton Julian's team at all, but it was his decision not to drive um, this year to, uh, for a number of circumstances there. That opened the door for uh, Montoya to make his second start at Le Mans. He was there in 2018 with United Autosports, finished third in the class after a pair of exclusions in LMP2. Um, so maybe this time he's hoping to actually get onto the podium physically, um, which is a distinct possibility with Montoya being joined by uh, Memo Rojas and Timothy Bure, who has replaced Ryan Cullen in the lineup. Um, Ryan is now in a G-Drive entry with Nick Tandy and Ali Jarvis, another strong lineup there in LMP2. You could check out the latest entry list at SportsCar365. There's been also been a few changes to GTE AM. And quite frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a couple other changes later on in the week if drivers are ruled out because of positive COVID tests or, or whatnot. Um, you know, there's a huge number of competitors taking part in this race this week. Um, so I'm expecting some surprises at times. You never know what what, what can happen for, for an event like this of this scale and, and magnitude. We had our announcement of the Grand Marshal for the event as well, a name that 
Sports car racing fans certainly will be familiar with Emanuele Piro. I think a pretty good choice. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, five-time Le Mans winner. Um, you know, the ACO always likes trying to, to find grand marshals that have a storied past at Le Mans. And this is the 20th anniversary of Emanuele's first win at Le Mans. And that was with the Audi program there with the R8. So it's amazing to think that that was 20 years ago when the, when the R8, um, the, that generation R8 debuted, the manufacturer uh, Audi debuted their the, the program debuted the year before with an R8R and R8C, but still the 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 real Audi juggernaut, you know, started I would say in 2000, and and that's when it all the magic started happening. And it's crazy to think it's been that long, but um, nonetheless, it's great to have Emanuele there, and um, looking forward to seeing him lead the field around in the pace car uh, to start the. Uh, be- prior to the start of the race. Yeah, you're right. I've got a model of that car actually sitting mm-hmm. in front of me right now. And uh, you look at it, and it holds up pretty well. It really doesn't look all that dated. And th- that that was yeah. the, the car of, of my youth, right? That's That was the era that got me into sports car racing. So uh, amazing to think it was that long ago. Uh, final couple of things. We definitely will have a different look to this event, not just because of the date. We've talked about the implications of that with more darkness, perhaps different weather than, than we've seen in years past, but just the condensed nature of the event schedule here this week. Usually this is such a sprawling affair. We're there for a week and a half or, or maybe more, and you have all these different events that, that are a part of this, and it's all been boiled down now to just four days, Thursday through Sunday, and a lot of time on track. I think this is going to be absolutely grueling. As much as the the sprawling schedule can be grueling in its own right, there is a lot of work packed into a very short amount of time for these teams. Yeah, I think it's going to be extremely difficult on the crews, especially. Just looking at the schedule on Thursday alone is is mind-numbing. And usually Friday, you'd have the whole day off, right. at least from the crew's perspective. You know, to rebuild the car casually, the drivers go to the parade, there's some announcements off the track. But now there's still sessions on Friday as well. So um, it's really, really going to be uh, a big factor of the race. You're going to have more nighttime running this year, cooler conditions. Um, there's a lot of different factors to play into things. Um, scrutineering is a single day affair on Wednesday at Lama. Um, so it's very, very condensed teams only were able to unload, um, this morning as we're taping this, um, on Monday. So usually they would get there almost a month in advance when you factor in the test day. So condensing everything from one month to less than a week is, is quite a, a monumental task. So, um, our Dan Lloyd is on site at Lama, um, He'll be the our our uh, reporter there throughout the week. Unfortunately, neither of us could have made it, but for other for various reasons. But um, we can hopefully have some uh, some podcast updates throughout the week as we normally would at Lama. So stay tuned uh, for that possibility. There, we're working on finalizing some plans there. Hopefully, kicking things off on Wednesday. Um, uh, in, in, in advance of the big race. Yep, keep your eyes on the podcast feed. Keep them on the website as well. As always, tons of coverage headed your way at sportscar365.com in the buildup to the world's greatest endurance race and throughout the race and post-race reaction, of course, as well. And uh, that'll do it for us here on the show this week. Hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have feedback for us, questions, comments, etc., feel free to leave them in the comment section of the post at SportsCar365 that contains this podcast. We can address them on a future show. You can also use the hashtag AskDoubleStint to uh, submit questions or comments 
for future shows. Rating and a review on iTunes also would be much appreciated if you have some time to help us out with that. Looking forward to covering Lamar and uh, in the rearview mirror when we look ahead to next week's show. Hope you join us for that. We'll talk to you then with our next edition of the regular edition of Double Stint. Hopefully, weekly updates or daily updates to come in the days to come. 